Good morning. Well, we're in chapter 3 of Joshua this morning, and we're going to read the entire chapter, which we can't always do because, but this is 17 verses, and uh, so I'd like to read it for you right now. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out for Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And yet, there shall be a distance between you, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe, a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above 
stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. I, uh, as a young man, learned best by doing. If you show me what to do and then I do it, uh, that's the preferred way for me. To describe it to me is a little harder for me. Uh, Of course, as I grew up, I realized that there's not always someone around to show me what to do. And so I had to figure things out a lot on my own. But I still love it when someone shows me what to do. And I think that's why I enjoy reading the Old Testament. I think that's why I enjoy reading Joshua, because I am seeing it shown to me how to rely on the Lord, how to trust in the Lord, how to live for the Lord. I have these different pictures. It's almost uh, like watching a movie or a television show. Uh, It's a great way to learn. And relying on the Lord is the fundamental decision of life that each of us have to make. And we don't make it once. That first one, yeah, that's a turning point. We even sometimes call that repentance because it's a turning point. It's a major course correction for us. But we have to keep making that all-important decision to rely on the Lord. There's just no substitute for it. Each and every day. C.S. Lewis talked about making that commitment afresh every morning. Well, reading Joshua shows us how to rely, how to trust, how to depend on the Lord. And we can learn from them because there's correspondence. I mean, this goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a millennium before Jesus. That's old stuff. These are ancient times we're reading about by the judgment of our modern times. And yet, there's correspondence In other words, we can relate to what they're going through, what they're experiencing. Their experience of God corresponds to our experience of God. Their pursuit of God corresponds to our pursuit. In fact, we have the same God and Lord as they did. And we have a sameness which we all relate to Uh, We wouldn't enjoy movies or books or stories. Uh, We wouldn't want to hear about another person's life unless we had a lot in common. And the fact that stories 
from antiquity are just as relevant. We can feel what they're feeling. We can see what they're seeing. We have this correspondence because we are all human beings. And our lives share things as well because they had mediation with God. And we have mediation with God. They had Moses and Aaron, the first high priest. They were mediators of God. They would meet in the tent of meeting. And it was there that God would talk to Moses, but Moses would relay those things to the people. And we have that kind of mediation too. We have that mediation through Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate mediator. He is the ultimate. I don't know what ultimate means to you, but that's like me. For, for me, that's maxing out. There's, there's no more. There's nothing above. There's nothing beyond. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. He is the ultimate expression of God. We know God through Jesus Christ. There would be no New Testament without Jesus Christ. That he is our mediator. But something really marvelous, even though the people in Joshua had Joshua as they had Moses, and they had Eliezer as they had Aaron. Eliezer was the second high priest of God's people. We have Jesus and we have his spirit dwelling within us. And that is a marvelous intimacy with God that is unparalleled. We need to keep those things in mind. And there's also the sameness then of God's presence. They experience God's presence What we are witnessing here in chapter 3 is the presence of God represented in the Ark of the Covenant. God told Moses to fashion the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box. It was a boxy box. But it was plated with gold. And inside of it were precious things. There was an urn keeping manna that the people had survived on in the wilderness. That manna, there was manna in there to remind them of what God had done to sustain them in the wilderness. There was the rod of Aaron, which had budded. (laughs) And that was in there. And then, of course, Very important, and this is why we call it the Ark of the Covenant. There are the covenant laws between God and his people. It's that that they agree on. And that is what we call the Ten Laws or the Ten Commandments. The Ark represented the presence of God in the midst of his people. And so when the Ark moves the people move if they're going to follow him. And the ark becomes a very, very important symbol. 
What do we have to match the ark? Well, I would say we have the church, we have the people. We realize that the institution, and there's a lot of sad things that happen when people try to follow the Lord together and people are human and sinful and sometimes they exalt leaders who lead for themselves and not for the Lord. So we know that churches aren't perfect, but it is the congregation, it is the people of God coming together that represent the presence of God. And that is an extraordinary thing. And that is established because of Jesus Christ. Our identity is in Christ and his spirit indwells us. And when we congregate, his spirit is strong. So I would say that Jesus, the spirit, the, the church, when the church comes together, we really know the presence of God. That's not to say that you don't have the presence of God or I don't have the presence of God because the Spirit indwells us wherever we go. But certainly the Spirit representing Jesus, the very presence, if you will, the character and the nature of Jesus is present with us in the Holy Spirit. And that's, so to speak, our ark, if you will, So there's a lot that we can relate to here in Joshua 3. What was striking to me as I read this again, and who knows how many times I've read it. You've probably read it several times at least, right? But this time when I read it, I saw something. I experienced something I hadn't in past reading. This is a mass ceremony. This is a mass ceremony. Mass because it's all the people of God, and they're all in it together. But it's a ceremony. It's not just a functional thing to cross the the river. And that is a very striking thing. And it got me to thinking about ceremonies. Ceremonies call attention to the sacred, to what is holy. And crossing the Jordan becomes the stage of God's presence and action. Our lives are that stage as well. We need to recover the sacred in our lives because we are the stage of God's action and presence. And he's doing a work in us. And that's the most relevant thing I see here between Joshua 3 and what God wants us to take away from our time of worship with him this morning. God's presence and power go together. But if we don't consecrate ourselves, if we don't see a holy thing going on, if we don't think that what God's doing in our life is an important thing, well, that's a crying shame. That's a crying shame.
One of the things that's so striking is we're told that they made their, their way here to the river and then they sat there for three days. Did you pick up on that? So what did they look at for three days? They looked at a river they couldn't cross. They looked at a big, swollen, rushing river. And I'll bet in the middle of those three days, along the way, little thoughts crept into their, their minds. What kind of a leader do we have in Joshua? You know, we could have come here at any time. We've wandered some 40 years out there in the wilderness. We've now been, been promised this place. We're ready to enter. And Joshua chooses the time when it's most swollen and impossible to ford. But then again, sometimes when we're beaten down by the thought that we're stuck, we're, there's no way out, we can't make it over, this isn't something, this is it, you know, this is the end. We tried, we tried, we tried, it just ain't going to work kind of thing. When we're confronted with our own weakness, insufficiency, vulnerability, then the God of perfect timing shows up. And that's what happens here. The time is right. Just right for God to make a big impression upon the people that he wants to rely on. He wants to rely on him. And so we're prepared by God in God's timing for his purpose. And he's trying to tell them in a way that could be told in no other way, not without me. Not without me, not without me. God himself is going to lead them. And God himself wants to lead us. Himself, that is kind of emphatic. I put that in, I could have said, God will lead us. God will lead you. God will lead me. But if I say God himself, that's an accent. And that is an accent that each and every one of us must be able to utter with sincerity. We may have doubts at times. We may, we may, we may feel so weak and insufficient that we can hardly move. But we should never forget God himself will lead me. God himself will lead us. That's is a truth that causes us to look for God, to seek his face, to be aware of his presence, to expect him to be at work in ways we wouldn't see if we're just entirely secular, you know? And, and society is increasingly secular. For years now, I, I'm reading a book 
I wish I'd thought to say this. Um, Eugene Nida, it was written the year I was born. Actually, it was written the year before I was born. It's, it's, it's all about uh, cultural anthropology. Eugene Nida is a linguist. Uh, he's been a missionary. This book was focused on missionaries. It, it talks about the entire world and all the peoples of the world and all the, well, the red, brown, yellow, black, and white of all the people that make up the world that need to hear about Jesus Christ. Who need to make that choice. And in that book, all those years old, what was, what is it like, 1953 was about, what, 30 years ago? (laughs) But... I don't even know how old that looks, do you? Probably wouldn't recognize it if you saw it. But in that book by Eugene Knight, it it makes it so clear um, just how everyone is so different. And he uses the word in that book, post-Christian. That, that our society is becoming post-Christian. Well, if that was at all true in 1953, it's a downright fact in 2022. And we are the stage of God's work in the world, you and me. And he wants us to trust him, to rely upon him, to be aware of his presence, and to to move in his power. Joshua said in verse 3, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, you follow it. You move after it. That's the kind of leading we're looking for. And Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. This is a holy thing. See, we secularize everything. We're Protestants. I don't know if you knew that. We're Protestants. And we don't put a lot of stock in ceremony. See, Um, our society doesn't, there's, Is there any ceremony left? We use the word, but sometimes there's no ceremony, really. People come dressed like they normally would. They don't do anything special. Ceremony is associated with power and often the presence of something divine. I'm talking about it in the most basic terms. And we Protestants, we don't put any stock in ceremony because we emphasize right-heartedness. We, in a sense, say, well, we're going to consecrate by being right-hearted. We're going to have the right thinking. We're going to have the right disposition, the right feelings. So we devote ourselves internally, unlike 
Some who through ceremony have vaulted ceilings, special furniture, special rituals, and robes and holy actions, water and different things, incense, because they want to draw our attention to the presence of God. And we say, ah, we don't need that. I know right up here. I know I have all that truth. And yet, the issue is, does that truth, we say, oh, that's true. I've got a hundred books by a hundred great scholars that will tell you, validate, this is the truth. And we subscribe to it. But it's like this golf magazine that I've been getting for years that I hardly even pick up. I save them, but I'm not reading them. And I ask myself, why don't I cancel that subscription? I think the most honest thing we could do, don't get up and leave it once, but the most honest thing we could do is cancel our subscription or get really serious about living for the Lord. And we've got to be aware of his presence. We have to realize that we are the staging ground for what he's doing in this world. You never retire. You're never finished. But the problem is that sometimes we've never even begun to realize God himself wants to lead me. And if you don't take that to heart, and I don't take it to heart, we go nowhere. And it is a holy thing, just like the ark. In fact, he says, 2,000 cubits. A cubit is from your fingertip to your elbow roughly 18-some inches. It was a measuring stick that everybody had. What's the measure? Oh, got it right here. But it was about a 1,000 yards, a 1,000 feet, which would be about end zone, the back of... That's about how far they had to stay from the ark. So when you're watching that football game today, and please do not mention the game to me. I'd really appreciate that. Not even a cute little wink, you know, like you know and you want to tell me. I do not want to know the score. But when you're watching the game, just imagine you're standing at the back of one end zone and looking at the arc at the back of the opposite end of that field. That's how far they were to keep their distance. This is a ceremony carried by the priest. Notice that having one of each of the tribes as a part of this procession and within that zone, see, within that sacred space, one member of each tribe, that's symbol, that's representative. And what it's saying to all the people is you are situated in what is happening here. You are very much a part of the will of God. 
You belong to this in a very intimate way that you cannot all participate, but you are recognized and identified with what I'm doing today. This is a ceremony, and we need to consecrate ourselves. Does anybody know how to consecrate himself or herself today? How often do you consecrate yourself a week? Nobody consecrates himself or herself anymore. We don't even use the word. Maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but I think we do it less than we should. How about that? There's a reason. James says it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 of his letter. He reminds us that we do not have what we desire because we don't ask God. At other times, we ask God, but he doesn't give it because we ask with wrong motives. We either ask for something godless or we ask for something godly, but to use it godlessly. In other words, we're not consecrated. We, we're not, we don't have sacred hearts. God will lead us, but we need to consecrate ourselves to see and to expect God. When was the last time you got on your knees when you prayed? Don't raise your hands. It's a good practice. It says, I'm consecrating myself. Or to lay flat on the floor with your arms out because you really care that much. These are ways in which we consecrate ourselves and ways in which we say, God, you're more important than anything else going on right now. I elevate you. I enthrone you on the heart of my life. We look for God's leading. Follow his direction. Walk in his footsteps. They were told to focus exclusively on God and follow his presence. They were told to consecrate themselves. We can't expect God to bless or endorse our indifference toward him. I heard a quote. I read it yesterday. I would have written it down if I wanted to say it, but I didn't, but now I do. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember the quote. I just can't remember who said it. But it was this. Uh, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And that's, that's a secular society, if I ever knew one. <laughs> We can't be indifferent. We're told to step out in faith in verses 6 through 13, but in all of this, nothing would happen until they took a physical step of faith and got the soles of their feet wet. You know, we can focus on God, consecrate ourselves, but until we actually take that physical step to follow him, we will not see what's next. And what's next 
is to stand still and watch God work. See, when we do all those things and we take that step of faith, it may not be a literal standing still, but the priests, when they, put, when they actually step into the water, they're to stop and stand still and watch God work. And what we, is conveyed to us in the last couple of verses of chapter 3, 15 through 17, is that the water just begins to rise up in this incredible heap. It's called a heap. You'd think it would be, you know, something a little more special than that. I mean, a heap? But that's the exact Hebrew word that was used when God parted the waters, when he led his people out of bondage and across the Red Sea. The water was heaped And the priests stand there, and the representatives, and they see the water heaped. And they're not trudging through, God, this is so sticky and muddy, you know. No, it's dry ground. It's hard ground. And they realize they are in the presence of God. Verse 17, look at it if you have your Bible or your device or your screen handy. One of the last words in that verse is the word nation. That's the first time in the biblical record and narrative that the word nation has been used of his people. This is the first time he calls his people a nation because now they are landed. They are a landed people, they are a nation. As God leads them into his promise. Be strong and courageous. God will lead us. That's an individual thing that we can cultivate by trusting the Lord, relying on him. And just in closing, because... You know, my prayer is, Lord, you know, help me to represent, to speak for you. Um, But do this in my life, too. And this morning, I was unusually nervous and maybe just a little anxious, which I'm always that way. Anything really important to you, you can tend to get the butterflies. And this is an important day because it's our annual meeting and you'll be there tonight, be here tonight, I hope. But two things I rely on in my awareness and walk with the Lord, I'll just share them with you as practical. Uh, One is... To, to move in love, whatever it is. If, if I'm nervous, I, I get, get centered by saying, do this in love. Let love control, govern your heart. That's walking in the will of the Lord. His whole mission in Jesus Christ, his whole revelation in Christ is love. His love, God's love, not our own human love. 
And that is, and then the other thing is just to honor in your heart his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Let's walk with the Lord this week. God himself will lead you. God himself will lead us. I'm going to close us in prayer, but I'm going to ask us, um, after I pray, to stand because we'll sing a closing song. And if you'd like to pray with me or others from our leadership who will come forward to intercede for you or with you for someone else or whatever, if you'd like us to pray for you, we invite you to come. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We live in the most amazing of times in the aftershock of your resurrection and outpouring of your Spirit and creation of the church. Father, help us to fathom what you want to do in our lives this day and days going forward. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.